0: Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, tells us that the human race, after the fall, after the entrance of the serpent, and after the serpent has had an opportunity to work on men, produces a situation where Genesis 6, verse 5 says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination... Of the thoughts of his heart was only evil every day. This word imagination here is a better translated every conception of his heart. And here again, we've spent a lot of time talking about the Hebrew understanding of the heart being something beyond our tendency to think of the heart as the blood pump or the heart as a romantic, emotional, sentimental part of us. The, the the Hebrew concept of heart is the entire makeup of the inner being. So men had reached a point where their entire inner life was set on wickedness, crookedness, fallenness. Remember, in our study previously, we talked about the fact that the purpose and plan of, of Satan was to pull man off of the Word of God and into a mindset in which we create our own definitions of reality. We create our own uh, our own world. We create a universe that doesn't acknowledge God, doesn't acknowledge God's definition of reality, replaces God with Satan, and uh, begins to build an alternate universe. So we see here by chapter 6 that they've got an alternate universe, all right? Wickedness is so great that uh, murder is rampant. Every evil imaginable and some things unimaginable are happening to the point that uh, it brings on the destruction of the world. Now, in the King James Version, there's only five verses in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament but translate the word imagination, or use the word imagination. One of them is what we just looked at, Genesis 6 here. Then Deuteronomy 29, verse 19, speaks of the stubbornness of men's hearts. But the King James translates it imagination of men's hearts. Same thing in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 17. Same translation of the same word as imagination. Then Proverbs chapter 6 verse 18 talks about wicked imaginations. Uh, other translations translate the word imaginations wicked plots, planning, scheming. Then Lamentations chapter 3 verse 60 speaks of the depth of their imaginations, but here again the word implies plotting, scheming, planning and all these plots and plans coming out of a heart of bitterness, anger, revenge, thievery, murder, etc. There's other words in Hebrew that we won't take time to pursue. I'll just mention them. Me'ah is actually the word for guts, your insides. There's another word for insides, kwe'erv, uh, which is same concept. Then there's kilia, the, the the kidneys. Uh, all of these speak of, of the entirety of our inner life. Now, the New Testament is not much different, really. There's only three verses that use the word imagination in the King James translation. Luke chapter 1, verse 51 says, uh, this is Mary's great hymn of worship after the Annunciation. He has scattered the imaginations of the proud, she says. Then Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Vain in their imaginations, men's foolish hearts have become darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They become fools and change or alter the glory of God into images made with hands. So, vain in their imaginations. Actually, I like the King James there better than most other translations for reasons we'll talk about later. But then Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God for the casting down of, pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, the King James says. But other translations uh, would would do it like this. The Luke chapter 1 verse from Mary's worship and praise song from the Annunciation, she says, those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, he has scattered. Romans chapter 1, their thinking became futile. Actually, I I don't think that's nearly as expressive as the King James there. Uh, They became vain in their imaginations. Again, we'll talk about that more later. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, instead of the word imaginations, pulling down strongholds, casting down imaginations. NIV says uh, evil reasonings. So are you beginning to get the idea uh, that we're not ever talking here about just the image-making processes of the mind when we're talking about the imagination? Those who refer to the imagination as evil are completely misunderstanding both the biblical text and the nature of human experience. Reason is not in opposition to the imagination, and the imagination is not in opposition to reason unless there is a badly taught misunderstanding. Uh, And this has to be rightly divided. It has to be rightly understood for people to get well, for people to become whole, for the power of the gospel to have its effect in the healing of the mind the will, the emotions, the relationships, the sexuality, and all the rest of it. We talked in the first hour together about reason versus imagination in Hebrew. Remember, I talked about the fact that the Hebrew text doesn't exalt the imagination above reason. It's just the opposite. It exalts reasoning above the imagination, but reasoning with a certain understanding. It's not It's not rationalism. It's not the reasoning of uh, the Enlightenment and uh, Greco-Roman philosophy. It's not the reason of anti-supernaturalist humanist modernism. It's biblical reason, which is the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, Wisdom, prudence, uh, the understanding of how to properly use knowledge, That's what we mean by reason here. But more than that, when we refer to reason in Hebrew, we're talking about honoring the word of the Lord above your feelings, emotions, desires, sympathies, relationships of human uh, origin. No. All of that bows to the Torah of God, the guidance of God, the teaching of the Lord. And so image and symbol takes a back seat to the word. What you hear is far more important than what you behold, uh, what you envision. And what you envision should eventually only be coming out of what you've heard and obeyed. But we make a big mistake when we start saying what I just said as a legalism. And uh, over the last 20 or 30 years, there's just been an amazing tug- of war in parts of the body of Christ over the whole subject of the imagination. I mean, whole books written in opposition to the use of the imagination. And I always scratch my head at that, wondering, where do, where do these people live? Do they think the imagination is something that you can choose to function in or not? That's the way they seem to approach it, and that's certainly the way they teach it, and then they misquote and misunderstand all these verses that I just have already mentioned. Genesis 6, the imagination is evil. This is the way they interpret it. The imagination is evil all the time. Bible says so. Well, that's not what that verse says. The Bible doesn't say that the imagination is evil all the time. It said that the wicked evil reasonings and plots and plans of men became evil every day. It, it became evil. Well, does that imply that it is evil? Or does it imply that they chose evil and could have used their imagination for un for, for holy reasons? Well, of course it does. In all those verses, which I won't reiterate, every one of those verses deals with not the imagination as being the source of the problem. The imagination is what it is. It is a human function. It, It is going to function no matter what. No matter how much some legalist harangues and beats you over the head with misunderstood Bible verses about the imagination being evil, you're going to have an imagination. The question is not whether you have an imagination or not. The question is whether your imagination is whole or broken, whether it's holy or impure, whether it's rooted in the, the, the word of God or in the world system. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, which John refers to in 1 John. So, uh we're talking about how to how to access through the holy spirit's guidance and the word of god the the wounds in us that manifest as a broken image that m- makes us live as a broken image and uh, when those broken images are are healed then our inner life is healed and this begins with the word, and but let me explain something about what I'm saying here. <laughs> I tell you, uh, you would have had a uh, you would have had a ball in here with me. I've got stacks of notes. I've got notebooks on my desk that that uh, cover up the vision of the door because I've got so much I've written over this uh, on this over the years, and and it's always a frustration for me to 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 whittle it down to a simple form that people can can really get a hold of. Because when you talk about the imagination, you're talking about what it is to be human. And yet, you know, I've already referred to this, and I don't want to go off on it and take up too much of our time on it, but some of you may know of cases where uh, people have been in terrible conflict with other Christians over this this subject. I, I remember years ago, a young man came to one of our conferences in Alabama. He was the son of a local pastor. He was in all kinds of moral trouble. And he was living in uh, willful sin and uh, all kind of things. I don't, it's just a typical litany of foolish evil. But his father was at a loss to know how to help him because he told his father, he said, I've got these pictures in my head. I can't get them out. I've I've got these memories, and I don't know what to do with them. And I, I've I, I think some of them are demonic. And the father, and I don't mean this to sound critical. It's just that it's kind of a sad commentary. This father, who's supposed to be a pastor, he is a pastor, didn't know how to help his son. Didn't know how to pray for him. Didn't know how to break the power of the demonic. Didn't know how to deal with the horrible images in his imagination, which were fe- feeling, you know, feeding his appetites. See, one of the guiding statements you'll hear me repeat over and over in this whole study is: "There's not a picture without a feeling. There's not a feeling without a picture. The imaginative feels." Uh, or it feeds our feelings so if our feelings are tormenting then there are pictures that are tormenting. If our feelings are lustful, there are pictures that are lustful. I mean, it's obvious. If our feelings are exalted, it's because we have a high and, and a holy image of what's true and right and good, which is why Paul says whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are lovely, if there be any virtue in them, anything praiseworthy, think on these things. Paul's obviously not saying, you know, float around like some little fairy in in a never-never land and play like the world is a happy place when it's not. Paul didn't do that, and yet Paul walked through the hell of the Roman world uh, with the power of the gospel manifesting in his life and in himself himself because he understood something that we're trying to grapple with here, and that I pray we'll all understand better and be able to live in once we've uh, gone through this series together and these studies. But when I say it's, it starts with the Word, some people would actually teach what I'm saying now is it's only the Word. You don't, you don't go into any imaginative stuff. That's new age. How is that new age, for heaven's sakes? You know, when I read a menu and the menu describes a certain dish and I get a picture in my mind of how that dish looks and how it will taste and whether I want to order that or not and spend money on it, am I practicing black magic when I do that? Well, I mean, it's too stupid to even try to answer that question. But when you have hyper knee-jerk reaction legalism, especially when it's dressed up as Christian, uh and you you end up with this uh, iconoclastic uh mindset that uh, drove so much of the uh hyper reformation uh movement i'm not saying we didn't need a reformation for heaven's sakes but uh, you know when you go in and you tear down everything in a church building and you knock the heads off the statues and you break the stained glass windows and you tear up the altar and you You know, set fire to everything so that uh, your idea of a a proper worship uh, facility is blank walls and blank imagery and no no imagery. Because uh, the Bible says, the Bible says, you know, that spirit, the the Bible says, I'm sorry, anyway, uh, that you're not to make for yourself any graven image or any likeness of anything in heaven above, earth beneath, or the water, you know. You, you. And do you realize if those people who did that to so many beautiful objects uh, of, of devotion, if, if those people were turned loose on the tabernacle of Moses, they would have torn it down to the ground in the name of righteousness, I mean there were there were uh, images of the seraphim embroidered on the holiest of all the, the the curtains that covered the holiest of all uh the the ark of the covenant would have been destroyed by the iconoclasts the self-righteous bible thumpers Protecting people from idolatry—it's <laughs> ludicrous. It's ludicrous. But I've—I'm reacting the way I am because I've had to deal with these kinds of people. So this young guy who comes because his father didn't know how to help him—do you know he actually told me? Now he—he's—he's—he's he's, he's addicted to pornography. He's into all kinds of horrible deviant behavior, driven by uh, uncontrollable appetites that he—he he didn't know how to handle because his imagination is filled with these demonic demonic images. But he he actually prefaced his request for help by telling me that his father said, these people are kind of new agey, but maybe they'll know how to help you. Uh, And uh, he, he actually had enough of a religious spirit operating in him to suggest to me that he had certain prerequisites of what I could and couldn't teach him, at which point I told him to go away. I said, well, you know, you just need to pack up and go away. I said, I'm not going to sit here and argue with uh, you over what light and dark is when your brain is full of fog. Um, And he understood the logic of that and stayed and got a lot of help. And I don't really know what happened after that. I just know he got a lot of help. He got a lot of help because he got a lot of truth. And when the truth comes in, the Spirit of the Lord then can work in that truth to bring about a cleansed imagination, not a doing away with the imagination, but a cleansing of the imagination. Because are you getting, did you forget what I started off talking about at the beginning of this? We're not talking about the imagination as being the problem. The picture-making faculty that is your image-making process in your brain is not the problem. The problem is your heart. Jesus said, out of the heart of man, issue, all these terrible things. Proverbs uh, 4.23, watch over your heart. With all diligence, because out of it come the forces that control your destiny. Watch over your heart. How do you watch over your heart? Well, it has to do with the function of the brain and the function of the heart together. I don't have time to get into this in great detail. Dr. J.P. Moreland has done some wonderful research on this subject. If you want to pursue that, uh, you can probably Google J.P. Moreland and uh just brain and heart research but one of the things that they've discovered in the last 8 or 10 years about the brain and the heart is that the the heart the blood pump heart has a mind of its own and there there are cooperative activities in thinking that go on between the human brain and the human heart. So we're not just talking poetically or sentimentally when we say that I believe in my heart so-and-so or I love something with all my heart or uh, it's really in my heart. To do. We're not misusing language at all. Uh, that's a study. I may be able to bring some more of that information in as we go, but I want to try to stick with where we're headed, which right now is to examine the fallen imagination and to get to get back to a place where we can begin to receive God's grace in healing our imagination. We don't begin with the imagination. We begin with the Word of God. I want to read to you a really outstandingly good statement uh, by Michael Card. and Many of you know Michael Card as a great musician and uh, writer, but he's also an outstanding Bible teacher. And he is doing a, a, a series that uh, is probably worth your time to pursue on the biblical imagination. And, and this is one of the things that he says about, about this. He says, uh, when we imagine, what are we doing? I don't pretend to fully understand the mystery of the human heart, but I believe it's safe to say that when we imagine, quote-unquote, something is taking place in our hearts. Literally, our minds are working with our hearts to create images. But the heart and the mind must work in concert together. They must be connected by a bridge In my thinking, this is what I call the imagination. The imagination is the bridge that brings the heart and the mind back together. It seeks to reintegrate and reconnect them since they were fragmented by the fall. The imagination that has been surrendered to God for this process of listening to the scriptures, I call a biblical imagination. And uh, that's in quote of Michael Card. Uh, and I want to have. Uh, there's something else I want to bring in uh, in just a minute from Michael Card here. But uh, do you understand? This is where we begin the healing of the of the imagination. Jesus said in John six sixty three, "The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life." So Jesus is not ever just talking to our logic or just talking to our brain or just talking to the left brain at the expense of the right brain or to the brain at the expense of the head. It's head and heart. And the the, the, the disconnection between head and heart in evangelical Christianity is destroying the gospel effectiveness in the culture. It's either destroying it by being so into the mind that it disregards the needs of the human heart, or so into touchy-feely that it disregards the authority of Scripture. You know, the old Pentecostals used to have a saying that says, too much word you dry up, too much spirit you blow up, spirit and word you grow up. And uh, vulgar as that may sound to some people, it's accurate, absolutely accurate. Well, Michael goes on to say here in this uh, in this article that uh, when you read with a biblical imagination, what does that mean? And then he gives a great example of uh, Jesus approaching the disciples when he calls them to be fishers of men. and he says, "You know, I've heard this a hundred times in sermons and Sunday school lessons, and I always thought of it as kind of a, a sweet atmosphere and you know, here are these guys working real hard, and Jesus walks up with a big smile on his face and says, uh, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And everybody's excited about that, and they say, sure, sure, we'll, you know, we get the analogy, Jesus, we'll, we'll, we'll follow you, and instead of fishing for fish, we'll fish for men. And it's all a happy atmosphere. Well... I love what Michael Card says here. He's saying, let me, let me show you what I mean by the biblical imagination. This is a, a word-centered imagination rather than a feeling or sentiment or uh, sloppy uh, emotional kind of imagination. It's an imagination informed with truth and not sentiment. He says I opened with a cozy scene of Jesus calling his disciples in Mark chapter 1 verse 17 I began by painting the scene I had you imagine uh, as I have done many times before an attractive picture but not necessarily a biblical one you see it was imagined by an uninformed imagination Let's retell the same scene from a more biblically informed perspective Jesus has recently returned from his ordeal in the wilderness where As only Mark tells us, he was, quote, with the wild beasts. Perhaps there's still some reflection of this intense period of temptation on his face. Secondly, he has just discovered that his cousin John has been thrown into prison by the bloodthirsty Herod. It doesn't require Jesus' prophetic imagination to see that John's life will not last much longer. We will see in Mark an ever-present shadow of the prospect of persecution, That shadow looms large over this opening scene. It's not cozy. It's ominous. Finally, there's the business of Jesus' creative appeal to the tired fishermen that he will make them fishers of men. Once you spend some time with Jesus of the Gospels, you quickly learn that almost everything he said is rooted in the Old Testament. He breathes the Torah. This opening appeal is no different. It's rooted in the book of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. I've wondered if the people mistook Jesus for Jeremiah because he was so open with his tears, like Matthew sixteen fourteen. The passage in Jeremiah, chapter 16, verse 16, is the prelude to a song about the day of disaster. But now I will send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. The passage has to do with judgment and destruction that's coming. This is the background to the passage in the first chapter of Mark. It's not cozy scenes, but one overshadowed with the serious prospect of the mission to which the disciples will soon be called. Jesus' words are neither warm nor inviting. They are ominous and powerful. The task of fishing for men and women is deadly serious business. Once we've done our homework and we return to the passage with an informed imagination, then it comes to life. Even the image of the sand between the disciples' toes, which I mentioned previously, is wrong. The shore of Galilee is extremely rocky. Neither would it have been a silent moment, as I said earlier. Galilee is the major flyway between Africa and Europe. The sounds of birds is always present. I agree with those who would be cautious of using the word imagination, for with an uninformed imagination, Jesus is merely a figment of the imagination. But when the imagination is surrounded along with the heart and the mind, or, or uh, it becomes a unifying bridge that opens the scriptures in a new and meaningful way. That's an extensive quote, but I felt like every word was so important that I needed to include it all. Michael Card, The Biblical Imagination. I would encourage you to pursue that study by Michael Card. And uh, he actually also provides for uh, seminars on this in the Franklin, Tennessee area. If you could ever see your way to get there, it's worth your time. So we're not wrestling with the imagination. We're wrestling with the human heart so we have to have the word of god informing the heart then what comes up out of our imagination in or what comes out of the heart into the imagination is a radar screen that gives us a, a, a clear indication of what's broken that needs to be healed or repented of or put right how utterly ineffective is the christian who refuses to acknowledge the imagination he's lost his radar now the imagination as we've said repeatedly, is the bridge which reunites the divided soul, restoring the good of reason with correct image, symbol, and emotion. But then the false gods come in and manipulate the broken and rebellious soul of man. So Jonah chapter 2 verse 8 says, Whoever gives heed to lying vanities forsakes his own mercy. That's one place where the King James Version, I think, is much more effective. Lying vanities, speaking of idols, speaking of false gods. But whenever the Old Testament, and throughout the scriptures, whenever it makes reference to idols, sometimes it speaks of the idol itself, which is just a dumb, meaningless, stupid image, uh, which Isaiah makes fun of when he says, you know, they, they take a hammer and they pound it into shape, and then they worship it. But then there's also the the greater understanding of the, the fact that the idol represents a, a, a true presence, a demonic presence. All the gods of the pagans are demons, the psalmist tells us, and Paul picks up that same truth in First Corinthians chapter 10. Behind the idol is a spirit of evil. Whoever gives heed to lying vanities forsakes their own mercy. They go outside the realm of reality into demonic insanity. Now the ancient pagan version of this, Abraham Heschel speaks of it as, quote, horror and shuddering, sudden fright and frantic insanity of dread all receive their form through the power of the demon. This represents the absolute horribleness of the world, the incalculable force which weaves its web around us and threatens to seize us. The malicious inadequacy of all that, all that and the irrationality at the very base of life receives their form in the manifold, uncanny, and grotesque apparitions that have inhabited the world from time immemorial. The Hebrew word, one of the Hebrew words, there's many Hebrew words for idols, but uh, mif- miflesheth here in First Kings chapter 15, verse 13, speaking of re- a repulsive Asherah idol, uh, speaks of this as uh, an idol of terror. The, the word here actually is translated idol, but it's the exact same word for terror. And then uh, Genesis chapter 11, of course, the establishment of the Tower of Babel and all the occult religion that pours out of that, the image and symbol of, of, of uh, that system. Uh, if I was not careful, I would go off on a tangent here on Genesis 11 uh, because the whole world system is seen in its seed form there. Uh, secularism socialism occultism one worldism uh, is all right there in its seed form and of course the idols that eventually become manifested in the end of the age in the book of Revelation as the uh, throne of the beast and the false prophet and the whole world what do they do? the whole world worships the beast they wonder they wonder after the beast they worship the beast because their hearts are idolatrous, they're easily pulled off into the idols of the world. Well, idols are spoken of as idols of the heart in many places. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 38, uh, has another word for idol, Ima. They have gone mad over their terrifying idols. This same concept of idols and terrorism connected here in the word ima. Uh, out of the heart of man, Jesus said, come these horrible behaviors. And so the imagery in the imagination comes out of the wickedness of the heart. You can see how legalistic people would fall into the error of thinking, oh, it's the imagination that's, that's evil. That's like looking through a window at a crime scene and saying that the window is criminal. The imagination is just where we view what's going on in the soul. Ezekiel 14 verses 3 and then verse 7, they have put their idols in their hearts and they've set these idols before themselves and they've become stumbling blocks that will cause them to sin. Then God says, they'll reach a point where I will begin to answer them according to their idols. See, if you don't, Go to the Word first, which I've been stressing and restressing. If you don't go to God's Word first, then you begin to have all kinds of false concepts pour in. And God finally says, you know what, if that's what you want to do, I'll start answering you according to your idols. I'll let your idols become the pseudo-voice of God to you, if that's what uh, what you're embracing now. Listen, some of you who are hearing me say that are already. God is never going to throw any of His children away into the hands of false spirits. That's not what He's talking about. He's talking about people who don't want God. They made it clear they don't want God. They go to, the, you know, the people of Jeremiah's day and Ezekiel's day went through the religious motions of Judaism, but they weren't seeking God at all. They, they weren't their, their hearts were not toward the Lord. They were actually using the worship of Yahweh as a cover for the worship of all kinds of horrible things, much like we have in our present culture. And so God's not going to ever cast you away uh, because you're struggling. He's, he's, he's talking about people who are not, are not struggling. They, they've embraced evil, called it good, and God says, you know, you keep moving that direction. I'll just let you start thinking you're hearing from me when you're hearing from evil. Ezekiel uh, 14, 3, and then verse 7. I will answer them according to their idols. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Every person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. The desire gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully formed, brings forth death. So there's a progression here from what goes on inside the heart of man up into the imaginative, out of the imaginative into behavior, behavior setting in motion that which should never have been set in motion. That's what sin is. We say sin is missing the mark. Well, yeah, technically that's a very mechanical, basic, nuts and bolts definition of sin. But when taken to its full understanding, sin is is giving creative energy that God entrusted to us as co-regents with him and as his children in his image and likeness, and taking that power that we should have used for good and giving it for the purpose of creating that which should never have been. Now, um, I've quoted uh, several things in our time here together that uh, were fairly extensive quotes, but I'm about to outdo myself now in an extensive quote because my mentor and friend, Leanne Payne, has addressed this subject better, in my opinion, than any other person has ever addressed it. And so I don't see any sense in trying to improve on it. I may stop and do some commentary on it to give some clarification. But in reference to the fact that we're dealing with the inner being and its brokenness away from God and away from itself and away from each other and away from the outside world, and what happens in the inner being when it chooses idols instead of reality, instead of, instead of the, the living God, when it begins to build for itself a false universe made out of the nuts and bolts and broken pieces of its own imagination. Uh, see. Once you begin to understand that, then you understand that the gospel and the, the delivering, saving power of the gospel is in our returning to the real, returning to the true. And uh, Leanne addresses this here in uh, her book, The Healing Presence. I'm going to quote from it extensively. The wonderful thing about uh, healing prayer is that we're given the power to recognize and hate that which is delusional and to walk away from it. We're given the power to accept the true center and walk into it. An awful example of failure to choose to live from the center is given in Charles Williams' novel, Descent into Hell. In it, he shockingly images one man's fall when he elects to love himself in exclusion to the more troublesome and time-consuming flesh-and-blood real woman. In her place, he takes to himself a succubus, That's an occult term for an imaginary woman or actually, technically, it's a it's a demon spirit that takes on the feminine uh, role. This is, in actuality, the practice of ma- masturbation with an accompanying fantasy life. The reader watches in horror as the real personality of this man, Wentworth, deteriorates, as his grasp on a real woman loosens, and as the illusory world, he step-by-step step chooses becomes more important, compulsive, and even horrifyingly bleak to him. We then see Wentworth deliberately and devastatingly descend into hell of the false narcissistic self, a center or locus from which he is finally unable to choose the good. He is then utterly passive and unfeeling, even though he realizes he is falling into perdition." Here, the creative masculine will, that which can choose joy and initiate change, has been utterly abdicated. It's now helpless. Hell, says Charles Williams, is an image that bears no more becoming. In Dante's Inferno, Satan is set into a block of ice at the bottom rung of hell. That's the image Charles Williams has in mind when he made this statement, Wentworth is now, like Satan, set in ice. For him there would be no more becoming. Sin has to do, in a very real sense, with rebelliously demanding to experience that which is not. What God did not create and can never look upon, much less bless. The facets of evil we call black magic, witchcraft, and sorcery illustrate this. The evil magician or sorcerer evokes the phantoms the illusions that would consume the naive, the unwary, those who are not living from the true center. The evil magicians call into being the illusory, that which hates reality. Let me just stop here and say, and I'll have more to say about this later, but nothing uh, nothing illustrates this like Hollywood. This is what Hollywood does. We call it the dream machine. But it's actually the hellish nightmare machine now more than ever. Although, thankfully, there are positive signs, they're, they're, they're few and far between compared to the overflow of demonic insanity vomited out of the hell of Hollywood. Satan and his minions hate all that is created, all of nature, the very matter that goes to make up our world, our minds, and our bodies. The satanic aim is to twist, defile, and destroy us, spirit, soul, and body. To achieve his aim, he uses that which is spun from our illusory bent selves and world around us. The pornographic images, including those of murderous hate and death, openly portrayed and hawked on such a grand scale throughout the world, are all demonic. They participate in witchcraft. Um, Then, I want to really stress in the few minutes that we've got left this this last statement from uh, Leanne as she's quoting Charles Williams as C.S. Lewis is examining one of Williams' poems. Charles Williams is concerned with how that which never was takes form. In an unfinished poem, the figure of Arthur. He uses the myth of King Arthur to further explore this same unreality. Arthur, in his lust, unknowingly lies with his half-sister, the evil Queen Morgause, and she gives birth to their son, Mordred, who then later kills his father, Arthur. C.S. Lewis, explicating this poem, explains that William's concern is quote, not with the psychological origins of evil, but with its metaphysical procession. You get that? He's not so much concerned about what's going on in Arthur's head or even Arthur's body in the sexual misuse of his half-sister, but he's he's more concerned here with how that which should never have come into existence gains a portal into the physical world by the misuse of the godlike power of creativity through a human being in rebellion to God. How, how does the how does the evil metaphysical procession occur? It's intrusion from nightmare into reality, the horrible stages whereby what ought not to be at all becomes an image. And what ought to be only an image becomes stone. And what ought to only be stone becomes a woman. And what ought to only be a woman becomes her son. And then you can go on from there. What ought to be only her son becomes Arthur's murderer. Thus we have a clear picture of how that which never was comes into existence. All that is evil and untrue has an illusory character in it and can seriously bluff us when we are without God's wisdom and knowledge, while all that participates in the lie, in evil, can only fragment and destroy. All that participates in the good is substantively real and creative. Williams shows us that evil is miscreation. Well, if you will take just that uh, extensive quote and chew on it and dwell on it, you'll get the heart of everything that uh, I hope to communicate in in this portion of, of our time together on the subject of the imagination. You are made in God's image and likeness The Holy Spirit dwells in you. He has come in to bring light and life and truth and healing. The fact that you as a believer may be feeling disintegrated inside, you feel broken inside, that doesn't mean you're not a believer. It means you are. The entrance of God's word brings light uh, the Bible says, the spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord, and the Lord searches all the deep inward parts of the belly. I think that's Proverbs chapter 18. The Holy Spirit comes in not because you're whole, he comes in to make you whole. So God in his great mercy, love, and wisdom oversees the events of your life and orders them, according to Romans chapter 8 he he causes all things to work together i didn't say he causes all things i said he causes all things to work together even the things that he did not intend and did not wish upon you he takes those things and rather than allows them to just be happenstantial tragedies that just dis- destroy you he allows the power of his cross and resurrection to take those very things that the enemy meant to destroy you with and use them, just like Nehemiah took the the broken pieces of the, of the wall of Jerusalem and used those broken pieces to make the new wall. God takes the broken pieces of your inner life and begins to rebuild you in your true image, in his image and likeness, in your true self. And all he's waiting for you to do is to bring those broken parts of you into his presence and just like a child, dump them at his feet and crawl up in his lap and cry in his chest and say, I, I can't wrestle with this anymore. I don't understand it. I, I don't know how to fix myself. There There's no way I can... I can't even cope with some of these things. And and th- those broken pieces are made up of what? Well, what is your imagination made up of? It's made up of memories, experiences, relationships, events, circumstances, all, I mean, all of life. That's what I'm telling you. I'm trying to do a study on the imagination is like, trying to do a study on humanity. I mean, can you picture something so foolish as a little tiny uh, booklet, and the title is Human Experience. (laughs) That's how I feel trying to do a study on the imagination. But I think if you can get this much, you'll be on your way. You bring those things into the presence of the Lord. You see, you don't run from him. You don't cover yourself with fig leaves and go running the opposite direction from him. You come straight to him with whatever is under the fig leaves. You take the fig leaves off and you you begin to let him talk to you. You stop dialoguing with yourself about how bad you feel, how ashamed you feel, how hurt you feel, how lustful you feel. You stop talking to yourself about yourself. That's like a hole trying to dig itself or a garden trying to weed itself. you got to have somebody smarter than the garden to weed the garden. you got to have somebody greater than the ditch to big, dig the ditch. And you got to have somebody greater than you are to sort out you. And so you come to him with all those pieces and you say, I'm, I'm scared to look at him." I know. I know how scary it is to look at him, And that fear of looking at them is because, number one, you think you've got to sort them out, but you can't. And number two, you don't trust God's character and goodness towards you. And so you have to repent of your unbelief and throw yourself, like David, into his arms. Remember what we spent time on with King David. I've learned to quit carrying things that are too big for me. I've learned to quiet myself like a weaned child. What was David weaned off of? Whatever he was using to try to help him cope with the things that were too big for him. What's yours? You know, is it, is it drinking or drugs or lust or is it more acceptable religious stuff like, uh, Church work or chocolate <laughs> or, you know, you name it. Whatever that thing is, you know, the Lord has to let your, your, your addiction of choice st- start failing you. Uh, and it can be good things. It can be things that you've always thought of as blessings. And they were blessings. I mean, they really were blessings. But they, they begin to lose their power to bless when the moment they begin to become a replacement for God himself and a way of avoiding the pain inside you. Then they become idols, see? And those who give uh, their energy to idols forsake their own mercy. Well, God's not going to sit back and let you forsake your own mercy. So he's going to let your idols start failing, and he's going to let the pain get bad, as bad as it needs to, so that you begin to bring the addiction to the Lord. We're, we're a culture so focused on bad addictions, you know, drinking, drugs, all this, all this stuff. You don't need me to list them. You know what they are. But we don't realize how often we may have to come through this process with good addictions, good things, things that were originally good, but somewhere in the process they have become a barrier between you and the purposes of God. It can be your marriage. It can be your children. It can be your best friends. It can be your ministry. It can be your profession. It can be your desire to get another degree. It can be what I mean all kinds of things. I mean, I've been through that on several occasions just in the last few years, and it's kind of disheartening to be my age and find that at my age, there's that many things the Lord had to to put on the cross. But blessed be his holy name. I'm so grateful that he did and grateful that he's faithful to. He who has begun a good work in me will finish it. (laughs) It just feels like he's going to finish me before he finishes it. But he can raise the dead, so I'm not even worried about that. That's not even a problem, is it? See. Okay, so uh, let's just briefly go back over what we've tried to address in this time together. The fallen imagination is not the problem. It's not that our imagination is fallen. It's that our heart is twisted and fallen and rebellious and uh self-deceiving and uh Jeremiah uh, the heart of the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked we've referred to that before desperately wicked and that phrase desperately wicked came to be identified with the name of Jacob as Jacob finally after a lifetime of manipulating to try to get his own way his way has to wrestle with God and he finds himself on his back with the angel of the Lord standing over him with a foot on his chest and the, the angel of the Lord says, you're, you're blessed, Jacob. You've wrestled with God and you've won. And now your name will be Israel, prince with God, because you've wrestled with God and you've you've won. And Jacob walks on from there with his leg out of joint. Well, you know, blessed are you if you're crippled in the wrestling that you're in right now, so that you lean like Jacob on your staff. You lean on the word of God and the presence of God and the pre- the, the the purposes of God on your on your in your life for the rest of your life. But uh, the other thing that we stressed in our time this hour was that uh, there are those who think the imagination is itself evil. Be patient with them. hope you'll be more patient with them than I am. I, I tend not to be very patient with them because it, it, it's, a, it's a mind-bending thing for me. But I understand it because when you're afraid of the human heart, when you're terrified to look in it, cause, and you should be terrified to look in it if you're trying to look in it without grace. But if you're a legalist, you don't understand grace. So you, you don't know how to look in the human heart, and so you're terrified of it. And so rather than Look at it with grace so you can bring help and healing. You put up legalistic fences around it and don't let anybody get near it and uh, and treat it like it's the problem. And then, of course, you've got 500 years of iconoclastic, hyper, anti-image and symbol to wrestle with in some religious circles. So, uh, And I'll, I'll have more to say about that in our next study where we talk about... R- holy image and symbol, and uh, the right understanding of of the imaginary, and how to feed yourself on the right understanding of the holy imagination, and as we make our way toward actually praying for the holy imagination to come in and and heal us, for us to have a holy imagination. I'm not saying this very well, because I'm trying to squeeze it all in and a couple of minutes and we don't have any more time. So (laughs) God bless you all. Thanks for listening. And uh, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue in them, if they be praiseworthy, think on these things. God helping us will do that.